0: Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougere here, and before we get started with this week's episode, I just wanted to let you know, if you have a writer in your life, or you yourself have wanted to write a book this year and are serious about becoming a published author, my coaching group in the Writer's Lounge has open enrollment starting March 7th. It's an opportunity to get personalized help to finally get your book written and out into the world. Spaces are limited to allow me to best help you, so swing by my website to get all of the details. The link is in the show notes, but if you're driving, it's ElizabethBougeret.com. That's Elizabeth B-O-U-R-G-E-R-E-T.com. I look forward to reading your creations. The famous shot heard round the world was fired in Lexington in 1775. It was the start of the revolution. The American colonies were taking a stand, organizing against the British to unify into a country of their own. On July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed, and so began the American Revolution. An agreement was proposed by both sides that, even in spite of the battle ahead, it was agreed that the value of the continental currency would be upheld and accepted anywhere by merchants, and the merchants were not allowed to inflate their prices in order to keep this agreement. This unstable and uncertain economic environment is where we will find William Beadle, a merchant with high integrity and unwavering reputation in the Stratford, Connecticut community he called home. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. William Beadle was born in London, England in 1730. When he was 32, he crossed the ocean in 1762 and decided to call Fairfield, Connecticut home. Here he opened several stores and was able to amass a large fortune. He wooed Lydia Lothrop, who was active in the pre-revolutionary affluent campaigns like William, and even though she was 20 years his junior, she accepted his proposal of marriage. They were married in 1770, and it wasn't long after they began their family. Ansel, their son, was born in 1771, and young Elizabeth came after. William opened another shop in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and decided to move his family there. Two years later, Lydia... Junior, I guess? Do we say Junior if the child is named after the mother? Or is that just for the father? Anyway... A young Lydia was born to the family, and in 1776, baby Mary was the final member of this happy family. William had every reason in the world to be happy. Business was booming, he was a member of the most elite circles, his wife held a high station in all the social standings, and this set their children up to surpass the parents one day. Their son, Ansel, would have a built-in station in the business world, and his three daughters would be able to marry well and be accepted into society anywhere. He had done well for himself and his family. For context, remember that this is a time in our history, the only thing a female had going for her to have a good future, safety, and security was if she were able to marry well. I'm sure Mrs. Beadle spent a good amount of energy thinking of these things having three daughters to marry off some day. For all intents and purposes, the family's standing in appearances in society was of vital importance. As the Revolutionary War began to dig deep into the colonial way of life among the businesses, their biggest question would be, would the continental currency hold up, or would its value fall? Despite the law that was signed before the fighting began, stating that merchants could not gouge pricing and would continue to accept the continental currency— The colonists would see an inflation in the majority of the shops. The merchants were worried that the value of the currency would fall, so by inflating their prices, they buffered the value changes. They did exactly what the law told them not to do, all except William Beadle. His integrity held strong, trusting that he would be reimbursed for his losses. Beadle's friend and neighbor, Stephen Mix Mitchell, would later write describing his friend, The person of Mr. Beadle was small, his features striking and full of expression, with the aspect of fierceness and determination, his mind contemplative, when he had formed an opinion, was remarkably tenacious as a merchant or trader, he was esteemed a man of strict honor and integrity, and would not descend to any low or mean artifice to advance his fortune." But then, William saw his wealth begin to slowly dwindle away. The war continued on and on, and it did not look like it was coming to an amicable end anytime soon. Within five years of the war, the brand new United States Congress would print so much of the money to pay for the costs of the war that it had to devalue the continental paper currency. The official devaluation ruined anyone who held large amounts of the currency. In March of 1780, Congress passed the new law stating that the continental currency was now valued at only one fortieth of its original face value. So to put it into perspective, if you had a one dollar bill, it would only be able to buy you 40 cents worth of anything. Or if you had 40 dollars, it was only worth one dollar. This was devastating news. Many of the other shopkeepers, in addition to raising their prices, stopped accepting the continental currency, but not faithful William. The Continental Current, printed on December seventeenth, 1782, quote, After the continental paper currency began to diminish in value, almost every trader sold his goods at an enhanced price. Beadle, however, continued to sell his products at the original prices and to receive the depreciated currency in payment. Now, in William's case, he was saving up all of the dollars he was being paid, believing that their value would return. So even though he had stacks and stacks of the currency, it was only worth a fraction of its initial price. Adding insult to injury, the value of the continental currency continued to plunge and eventually stopped circulating. There was no way out. He had lost an enormous amount of money, And as he saw things now, he would never be able to get it back. By obeying the laws of the Continental Congress and by doing his patriotic duty, he lost his fortune. As of that fateful day in 1780, Beadle's mind spiraled out of control. He began to see the future as dark and bleak. He would no longer have his social standing. He would not be able to live his affluent lifestyle. The life as he knew it would be over. He was afraid he would be facing bankruptcy in the near future, but his integrity would not allow him to break the law. He refused to raise his prices, he continued to accept the continental currency, and he would not insist on past debts that were owed to him be brought current. But he did make one adjustment. He stopped extending credit. Stephen Mix Mitchell, his neighbor, would write, quote, The money he laid by, waiting and expecting the time would soon arrive when he might therewith replace his goods, resolving not to part with it until it should be in as good demand as when it was received by him. His expectations from this quarter-daily lessening finally lost all hope, and was thrown into a state of little better than despair. As it appears from his writings, he adopted a plan of the most rigid family economy but still kept up the outward appearance of his former affluence, and ever to the last entertaining his friends with the usual decent hospitality, although nothing appeared in his outward deportment which evidenced the uncommon pride in his heart. His writings show clearly that he was determined not to bear the mortification of being thought by his friends poor and dependent." If his debt was not repaid, and his savings not returned, he would be facing the fall from the wealthy, civilized class to that of the working class. A fate worse than death. He would write, If a man who has once lived well, meant well, and done well falls by unavoidable accident into poverty, and then submits to be laughed at and despised and trampled upon by a set of wretches as far below him as the moon is below the sun, I say if such a man submit, he must become meaner than meanness itself, and I sincerely wish he might have ten years added to his natural life to punish him for his folly. In the mind of William Beadle, there was no other solution. Rather than facing a life of poverty, he must die. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the Body Wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you! Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. William Beadle thought of little else, and he wrote on his quandary almost daily. He would share some of his thoughts in letters to his friend, Colonel John Chester, who only saw a man in distress, but would not give it a second thought that he wrote in earnest. He would write, quote, I am in such a situation that if I cannot procure food, remnant, nor fuel for myself and family, is it not time to die, End quote. After all, his letters did recognize the thought that if he ended his life, he would be leaving his wife and children to bear the burden he left behind. It would be even worse knowing his family would be chastised and left to bear the results of his financial failures. Chester felt, in time, his friend would come to his senses and nothing bad would come of these words written in times of great stress. Beadle did come to realize that by ending his life, that it would not help his family he decided that he loved them way too much in order to wound them any further in such a way. He would write, quote, As it is a father's duty to provide well for his flock, I choose to consign them over to better hands. End quote. The only humane thing to do in his mind then was to kill them too. He writes, quote, I mean to close the eyes of six persons through perfect humanity and the most endearing fondness and friendship. For never did a mortal father feel more of these tender ties than myself. I really believe that the true God supports me. For while I am writing these very words and meditate on this intended deed, no singular anguish of mind affects me. And why should it? For my intentions are of the purest kind. But this brought up the question of his wife. He wasn't sure if he had the right to take her life. He would write that he, quote, had some doubts whether it was my duty to destroy my wife as i had not a hand in bringing her into the world end quote. he rationalized she was still so young and beautiful and possesses quote, an excellent heart that wishes to cause happiness to everything that breathes end quote. if he spared her life surely she would be able to marry again but then again he continues quote, her incapacity of gaining a livelihood or proper partner after what will be called a shocking disaster and her extreme fondness for her children must cause a distraction or a state of mind that would be worse. Rev. Mr. Marsh would later say quote, he finally concludes it would be unmerciful to leave her behind to languish out a life in misery and wretchedness. Which must be the consequence of the surprising death of the rest of the family, and that since they had shared the frowns and smiles of fortune together, it would be cruelty to her to be divided from them in death." It's settled. He finally reasoned, quote, We take our leaves of life together." In season two, episode eleven of the Bag of Bones podcast, I talked about the Lawson family and the head of the household who chose to take the lives of his wife and children and then his own, but he would leave no reasons as to why, and the decades of speculation continue still. As with the case of William Beadle, he leaves behind his writings that contemplate every step of this horrific plan. In his eyes, he was saving his wife and children from the humiliation and lifestyle that was sure to be destitution. The minister that performed the funeral rites would speak these words, quote, Since his death I have seen a letter he wrote to a friend as early as 1777 in which he has an expression like this, quote, I believe I and my family shall not live to see the end of the war, end quote. It was then understood to mean nothing more than his expectation the war would continue a long time. His late conduct has explained it very differently. Until it was time to take care of things, he hid his intentions, for the most part, pouring his thoughts and feelings and decision making process down on paper, purging the thoughts from swallowing his brain. He writes, any man that undertakes any great affair and at the same time thinks ought to be very deliberate indeed and think and reflect again and again." End quote. His family was none the wiser and participated in the community activities, hosting and guesting at parties and galas, all the while running his business as the law entailed. He continued to save his continental currency. He did not raise his prices. And he planned and plotted his exit strategy quietly behind an artificial calm exterior. There was just one thing. He was confident in his plan to take the lives of his family and himself, truly believing that was their only option. But he didn't want to go to hell. He must look into that further. While William was still living in London, he was heavily influenced by the deist movement. In a short, very oversimplified explanation, it is the question of the relationship of God with earth's human inhabitants and their involvement with each other. It believes that the proof that there is a God as a higher power is revealed through nature. They believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God but only as a mortal and did not possess supernatural powers. According to J.A.I. Champion in his book The Pillars of Priestcraft Shaken, The Church of England and Its Enemies, 1660-1730, he believed the original perfect religion and relationship between God and man was corrupted by priests who, quote, manipulated it for personal gain and for the class interests of the priesthood and encrusted it with superstitions and mysteries irrational theological doctrines," end quote. Thomas Paine in his book The Age of Reason claims, quote, "as priestcraft was always the enemy of knowledge because it supports itself by keeping people in delusion and ignorance it was consistent with its policy to make the acquisition of knowledge a real sin." End quote. So at the time deism was giving christianity a run for its money. When William moved and assimilated to the new colony and married, he fell back into his Christian beliefs as his wife did. How does this apply to today's story? Unlike Christianity, deists believe that God does not have any hand in human affairs. They believed that once God got things in motion, he stepped back and watched as your decisions played themselves out. As he thought about his upcoming actions, he admitted, quote, if anyone in this case is culpable of punishment, it must be myself, and I must submit to the highest power. End quote. It comes down to this: if he is a Christian and kills his family, he would have been believed to fall under the persuasion of the devil and will be punished and go to hell. But if he is a deist and kills his family, it's just what nature intended. He would lament. Quote, if I should at last prove Mr. Devil or any evil spirit that prompts me in my plan to kill myself and my family, all I can say about it is this, that I was born a very unlucky fellow. End quote. Not being a fan of eternal damnation, he determines that his option is not just the best option, but the only option. He writes, My person is small and mean to look on. And my circumstances were always rather narrow, which were great disadvantages in this world. But I have great reason to think that my soul is above the common mold. There are but few men capable of deism. They are like a diamond among millions of pebbles, End quote. He decides. <laughs> Brace yourself for this dizzying justification. He writes, quote, I mean to die a proper deist. I really think there never was anything done wrong in the world. But, like my friend Pope believes that all is right, that we are all impelled to say and act all that we say and do and act. That a tyrant king or two or three fierce republicans deluging three quarters of the world in blood, that my killing my family, that a man destroying a nest of wasps, or a fly escaping another man that means to kill it, is as much directed by the hand of heaven as the making of this whole world was and if this is the case there is no such thing as sin End quote. theists have a flimsy doctrine on morality as well their only source for governing what is moral and what is not is to quote unquote, look within In his writings, I find that Beadle checks in with himself regularly to see what his inner moral compass is reporting back. As he sits and contemplates his new theory, he writes, I really believe that the true God supports me. While I am writing these very words and meditating this intended deed, no singular anguish or mind affects me. Because his inner thoughts told him this, he took it as means that he made the right choice. In other passages of his personal doctrine, he chooses the when and the how the deed should take place, and as he runs through his options of weapons, he goes through the internal detector to see where the weapon ranks. He reports back, quote, I can handle and look upon the weapons of destruction and the dear objects that are to fall by them without tremor and without fear because I function in the will of God, end quote. He now firmly believes that because he feels no anxiety or quote-unquote tremors, that God is supportive of his choice. Maybe something I didn't point out is that this was not a rash decision. It wasn't something he came up with and would attempt to carry out in a few days' time. Three years. Three years is how long he has been planning and replaying these schemes out in his head. Beadle states that his plan was, quote, three years in contemplation, end quote. By 1782, William Beadle keeps a long-handled axe beside his bed. Mrs. Beadle decided to go to Fairfield to visit family, leaving the children with their father. William, of course, took this as the sign that he was not meant to murder his wife. She would be safely far from the home, and the deed would be done long before she would return. She left home on November 7th, 1782. He decided that November 18th would be the day. He ordered a fine meal of oysters to enjoy with his children. He added some thoughts to a letter he was composing to his friend, Colonel Chester. He set to work writing out his will, stating that his stack of continental currency was not to be touched for a full seven years, just in case the price went back to its original value. Little did he know that Congress would eventually pay its war debts in 1790s exchanging the continental currency for treasury notes, but only paying one penny on the dollar to buy back the currency. But then, his wife unexpectedly comes back home ten days sooner than she was expected. Undaunted, he now assumes that this was destined to be the new plan, Unless the fates change faster than the wind, she is to go with us. End quote. On November 17th, the eve of his intended plan, his wife comes to him. Her face is ashen as she trembles as she speaks. Lydia tells her husband of a dream she's had, and he writes, quote, She thought I had wrote many papers and was earnestly concerned about her. These papers were spotted with blood. That she also saw a man would himself. Past recovery and blood guffle, as she expressed it, from different parts of his body. End quote. He calmed and reassured her and smiled to himself. He interpreted the meaning of her dream to imply that God stood firmly behind his plans. He writes, quote, I am unappalled and think the hand of heaven is really with us. End quote. On the evening of November eighteenth, Beadle gathered his family for the hearty feast. He writes, quote, I have prepared a noble supper of oysters that my flock and I may eat and drink together, thank God, and die." Mitchell would write after interviewing the maid, quote, He sent the maid with a studied errand to a friend's house at some distance, directing her to stay until she obtained an answer to an insignificant letter he wrote to his friend, intending she would not return that evening." But she did return. In his pages, Beetle would remark on the surprise of her coming back so soon, and believe that he had no right to kill her or frighten her, for that matter. The deed was postponed. Mitchell would write later on in a letter: quote, "The next day, he carried his pistols to a smith for repair. It may be the ill condition of his pistols might be an additional reason for the delay." End quote. While Beetle thought on a new plan, Thanksgiving rolled around. Beetle's demeanor became erratic at times, and now, in addition to the axe, a carving knife also lay beside their bed. On the 28th, Thanksgiving, William would write of another dream his wife would come to him about. He writes, quote, She dreamed that her three daughters all lay dead and that they froze in that situation, end quote. And shortly after, another dream that he would document as, quote, she was suddenly seized and liable to great punishment that it created great confusion but afterwards got free and was happy End quote. he believed her dream to be true yes at first she might be frightened but then she would be free and happy it does make you wonder if she knew what might be coming and just resigned to it he wrote of her quote unquote, "excellent heart" and would still not let her words have any ill effect on him he wrote, quote, Even yet I am little affected. O oh mighty God, wonderful indeed are thy works. Men may rely on it that 'tis God alone that now directs me and supports me.' End quote. Insert Face Palm Emoji. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. As a full-time author and amateur historian, I'm out here traveling alone across the United States. I like to know that I can travel safely. That's why I love Damsel in Defense. From tasers to mace, I can be confident knowing that I can defend myself, allowing the world of travel to be open to me. Damsel in Defense offers a variety of self-defense items to choose from, and you can decide what is best for your comfort level. And now I can feel safe while out and about, in my truck, and even at home in my camper. I love this company's mission and dedication to quality. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, I can offer you this exclusive link and you can take control of your safety too. Check out their full product line at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. December 6th, Beetlewood write, I rose before the sun, felt calm, and left my wife between sleep and awake, went into the room where my infants lay and found them all sound asleep. He hovered over them, reveling in the power he held as he could easily do the deed in this moment, as had, the means of death with me. He refrained and complimented himself on his self-control. He wrote, I had not before determined whether to strike or not, but yet thought it a good opportunity. I stood over them and asked my God whether it was right or not now to strike, but no answer came, nor I believe ever does to a man while on earth. I then examined myself. There was neither fear, trembling, nor horror about me. I then went into a chamber next to that to look at myself in the glass but I could discover no alteration in my countenance or feelings. This is true as God reigns, but for further trial I yet postponed it. On December tenth, he penned a letter to his friend Colonel John Chester, writing, Thank heaven, for I believe the day is now come. This is a glorious one, and providence seems to smile on the deed. His neighbor Stephen Mix Mitchell would recall seeing his friend, Grinding a large carving knife, end quote, but also knew that he was entertaining friends that evening, which Mitchell was in attendance. Quote, he appeared as cheerful and serene as usual. He attended to the little affairs of his family as if nothing uncommon was in contemplation. End quote. And when the guests dined and visited, even at the hour of 9 p.m., Mitchell states, quote, he was urgent as usual for their stay. End quote. Early the next morning, the maid was nudged from sleep and told to get dressed and meet him downstairs, quietly, without disturbing the children. When she met him, he had written a note for the physician that lived about a quarter of a mile away. He told her that the mistress had been very ill all night. By her account, he gave her explicit instructions to stay there until he would be able to return with her. He watched her leave and returned upstairs to his bedroom. There his wife slept peacefully. With his long-handled axe, he brought it down on her skull once, and then twice. He leaned her body over toward the edge of the bed so that her head hung over the side and then slit her throat with his carving knife from one side across to the other. The blood poured from the wound onto the floor. Before leaving his room for the last time, he covered his wife's head with a handkerchief. His bloody footsteps led the way to his children's rooms. His son was struck in the head and draped over the side before his throat was slit, quote, as if to prevent the bedding from being besmeared with blood, End quote. His three daughters each were bludgeoned and then gently picked up and laid on the floor side by side in a row. Then each of their throats were cut. He pulled a blanket from the bed and covered their little bodies. Covered in blood from his wife and his children, he makes his way down the stairs to his study. He carries the knife and drags the axe behind him. He sits in his Windsor chair and places the knife on the table beside him. Here he finds his two loaded pistols waiting for him. He takes one in each hand, resting his elbows on the arms of the chair, and points the muzzle to his ear. He fires them at the same time, The muskets sliced through the brain in transverse directions. Although the neighbors were very near and some of them awake, none heard the report of the pistols. Whether it was his original intention or the dreams of his wife that inspired him, the Reverend Marsh would note, Her last dream penned by him was nearly literally verified. Mitchell, who was one of the first on the scene and responsible for documenting most of the details of the massacre, writes, quote, The line to the physician obscurely announced the intentions of the man. The house was soon opened, but alas, it was too late. The bodies were pale and motionless, swimming in their blood, their faces white as mountain snow, yet life seemed to tremble at their lips. Description can do no more than faintly ape and trifle with the real figure. Such a tragical scene, filled every mind with the deepest distress, nature recoiled and was on the rack of distorting passions, the most poignant sorrow and tender pity for the lady and her innocent babes who were the hapless victims of the brutal, studied cruelty of a husband and father in whose embraces they expected to find security melted every heart. When he read through Beadle's papers to try and discover how everything came to this point, he saw the quote, shocking effects of pride and false notions about religion. As the news spread and people from all around came to witness the horror for themselves, Mitchell would tell of the aftershock. Quote, the very inmost souls of the beholders were wounded at the sight and torn by contending passions. Silent grief with marks of astonishment were succeeded by furious indignation against the author of the affecting spectacle, which vented itself in incoherent exclamations. End quote. Even as the Revolutionary War raged on, the small town of Wethersfield was in shock and mourning for tragedy so close to home. This would be documented as the first mass murder suicide in American history, and the people were not sure how to deal with it. Mitchell wrote, quote, near the close of the day of the twelfth of December, the bodies being still unburied, the people who had collected in great numbers grew almost frantic with rage, and in a manner demanding the body of the murderer. The law being silent on the subject, it was difficult to determine where decency required the body to be placed. End quote. The citizens among themselves first thought they wanted Beadle to be drawn and quartered but no one could agree on which crossroads it should happen, as no one wanted such a spectacle so near to their own homes. It was later decided that they would give him the most unceremonious burial they could think of. Mitchell explains that the body was taken, quote, to the bank of the river between high and low water mark. The body was handed out of the window and bound with cords on a sled with the clothes on as it was found and the bloody knife tied on his breast without coffin or box end quote. spectators followed the sled being pulled by beetle's own horse until they arrived at the water's edge he writes quote, the body was tumbled into a hole dug for the purpose like a carcass of a beast end quote. however no one actually thought that idea through that with the rising of the tide the body would also be freed from its shallow grave Beetle's body was discovered floating near the water's edge by some local children until men came to remove it and as Mitchell wrote, quote, it has had a second remove to a place where it is hoped mankind will have no further vexation with it. End quote. William Beadle was fifty-two years old. It was said of Mrs. Lydia Beadle that she was quote, born at Plymouth in Massachusetts of reputable parents, a comely person. Of good address, well bred, usually serene, sincere, unaffected, and sensible, died in the middle of life, aged thirty-two. The children, Ansel aged twelve, Elizabeth eleven, Lydia eight, and Mary was only six, were such as cheered the heart of the parents, who was uncommonly fond of displaying their virtues and eloquencies, and seemed to anticipate a continuance of growing parental satisfaction alas like early tender buds nipped by untimely frosts they did but begin to live End quote. as mitchell relates the events of december twelfth to his acquaintance you can feel his anger rising with every stroke of his quill quote, it is very natural for you to ask whether it was possible a man could be transformed from an affectionate husband and an indulgent parent to a secret murderer without some previous altercation which must have been noticed by the family or an acquaintance. Yet, this was the case in this instance. There was no visible alteration in his conduct. It appears by his writing that he thought he had a right to deprive himself of life and intended to exercise that right if ever he should think himself unfortunate. The extension of this right to his children was very easy. He flatters his pride by believing it was the height of heroism to dare to die by his own hands, and that the deity would not willingly punish one who was impatient to visit his god and learn his will from his own mouth, face to face in some future world or worlds, which he thinks there may be many, and seems to think there is as great a probability of succeeding advantageously in removing from one world to another." And I will leave you with a few angry thoughts from the Reverend Mr. Marsh, who would speak at the funeral for Mrs. Beadle and the children. Pride, impatience, and cowardice first led him to think of destroying himself and family and operated powerfully in bringing him to determine upon it. He had a high opinion of his intellectual abilities and was uneasy with the meanness of his personal appearance, and slenderness of his fortune. Being too haughty to submit to the humbling dispensations of providence and not having fortitude and courage enough to encounter and sustain the inconveniences arising from the straitened circumstances, he entertained the cowardly thought of flying from them and taking sanctuary in the unknown world, the horrid deeds perpetrated by this man under the influence of such principles are a more effectual confutation of those principles than any that is in the power of language to produce. End quote. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Bag of Bones podcast. And thank you for the five-star ratings. We are really starting to get some traction and the word is getting out. I appreciate your help with that. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Bag of Bones Podcast either on Facebook or on Instagram. And I'm now on LinkedIn. So if you're out there, please connect. I'm Elizabeth Boucherie. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Boucherie. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.